If you have your Bibles with you, open up to Isaiah chapter 8. We're in the early chapters of Isaiah. Some of the most familiar passages actually that go with Christmas are found in these chapters. We're convinced that's not a coincidence, right? No coincidences there. Isaiah chapter 8, we'll start in verse 1. We find ourselves picking up with Isaiah as he is proclaiming to the southern kingdom warnings about backsliding and calling them away from that. The uh, current king, Ahaz, has uh, inherited from his grandfather the southern, in the southern kingdom. His, father, his grandfather's Uzziah, which we read about in chapter 1, was a very good godly king for 52 years of his reign. And then Isaiah comes on the on this scene there, and the nation of Israel is going astray, though. Um, of course, there's a divided kingdom. About 200 years before Isaiah chapter 8, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split after Solomon's reign. The northern kingdom had uh, never had a good king, and they uh, were subject to a great amount of pressures from the world. Uh, being up there in the north, they had Syria always an aggressor towards them. And then in the northeast, they also had uh, a great many empires on the rise and threatening them. Currently, it's Assyria. And they are making uh, political calculations to try to protect themselves and find a way out of that without the Lord. And that's always a mistake. And so um, we pick it up in Isaiah chapter 8, There's a section here between chapters 7 and 12 in Isaiah that goes by the title. Sometimes people call it the book of Emmanuel because we're introduced to that person, Emmanuel, God with us. And we're going to read and find that name in in these texts. Isaiah is called to go and do a funny thing here. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning... Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record. And those faithful witnesses are Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberekiah. Okay, names there, some advanced names there. Okay, uh, well, so Isaiah is called to write about this mystery person, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. He doesn't know who he is. And they're supposed to write some things. Um, the, he takes a couple of... Uh, uh, upstanding citizens to record this document. And so these they're looking for this person. They don't know who it is. Verse 3 tells us, And I went to the prophetess, his wife, obviously, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So there you go. There's, there's the mystery man we're waiting for. This kid, the son of Isaiah, is his second son. He had another son in chapter 7, verse 3. He had uh, Sheer Jashub. Well, uh, you know, going to school, Mr. Mehel Shalal Hashbaz, you can see, you know, he's the kid, and the kid's calling, the role is called Mehr Shalal Hashbaz. Here, you know, everybody looks at him, he's embarrassed. You know, uh, oh yeah, that guy's kid's, you know, that, guy, that kid's dad's the prophet, that's why he's got that weird name. Uh, but uh, his name means speed the spoil. Hasten the booty. In other words, what's coming is coming quickly. What's coming is an invasion. And the kid's name is a prophecy that way. 
And then tells him, verse, he goes on and tells him, verse 3, Call his name Meher Halal Shashbaz, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother. In other words, before he could put together the simplest sentences, you know, so maybe two or three years old. The riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. And uh, the kid is a prophecy. The kid is a prophecy about uh, the coming uh, invasion of Assyria into the north to uh, reduce them quite a bit. And so the Lord spoke to me again, verse 5, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin in Remaliah's son, now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty. Well, um, he's, again, Isaiah is putting out a warning to his people, to the north and to the south, about uh, trusting in something other than himself, other than the Lord. And he makes a, he makes a parallel here. Um, they had a water source in Jerusalem, uh, the waters of Shiloh that are listed there in Spoken of in verse six, it's a, it's a, uh, you know, in those those places, water is the critical resource, and so uh, the city of Jerusalem had sprung up around a water source, um, this stream of Shiloh, and it provided all their waters. They had, you can still go find um, uh, this, the reservoirs that they dug to uh, st- store this water in Jerusalem. This becomes um, the waters of Shiloh. We find them in the New Testament. In John chapter 9, when Jesus heals a man born blind, and he's sent to the, the pool of Siloam, it's the very same place. And um, the Lord is drawing a parallel between this water source and the what he says, the waters of the river, in verse 6, the Euphrates, and he uses it as an illustration. And um, what the people had done had basically looked at the world around them and said, we want to be just like them. We want what they have. What they have is attractive to us. And the Lord is, is saying, look, I've provided for you. This little stream here provides all your needs in Jerusalem, and, and, and I've provided for you quietly, simply. This little water source is an illustration. He said, why, why do you want to go and drink from the Euphrates? And then this wild torrent of water that's up there. Why do you want to be like that? Uh, backsliding warnings. Um, to choose the world instead of a simple, quiet, and peaceful life of obedience. The Lord's saying, what's wrong with what I provided? Why are you looking to the world? Why go up to Assyria? Why? What's, what's, what's so bad about the life I've provided? God's providing quietly, peacefully. Um, you know, and um, he's provided completely. Why go look for something else? And I think it's sometimes some of us in the body of Christ just don't know the value of that simple beauty, that, that the value of that simplicity, simply providing, uh, having the Lord provide for us quietly, simply. We don't know the value of that until we've thrown it away. And then we learn. And that's, I think, what's going on here is that warning against the backsliding. You know, 
Assyria can't add anything to what I'm providing you. In fact, what you're leaving me for, the Lord's saying to them, is eventually going to destroy you. You know, that's so often the case with backsliding. People get, a, get attracted to the world, and they go out and they begin to sip from the world, and nothing happens. And they think it's okay. And they find themselves out there as in, in a regular fashion then in the world, and then suddenly the dam breaks, right? And there's a flood of difficulties that could have been totally avoided. They just stayed put with the Lord stayed with him, rested in his provision, trusted in that simple life. That's what's going on here with, with them. The Lord's saying, uh, don't go up to Assyria. What I've provided for you is vastly better. Don't be attracted to that wild torrent. And he denounces that. He says, um, the waters, inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and Remaliah's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go, go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. The stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. And, and this is history in advance in a lot of ways, right? Uh, Assyria is going to come down and it's going to, first it's going to take the northern tribes uh, in, uh, in short order. And then uh, later on, it's, um, gonna, they're going to push all the way down and take those southern tribes right up to their neck, with Jerusalem being, you know, the head. They're going to be right at the gates of Jerusalem, threatening to overrun them. And we read about that, right? Chapter 37. But if it wasn't for the Lord's divine intervention at that point, they would have wiped him out. We'll read about that in chapter 37 when we get there. And so he goes on and talks, chapter nine, uh, verse 9, Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces, Give ear, all you from far countries, gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. That's just a a denunciation of uh, Assyria that's coming down. They have their plans. They have their goals, their foreign policy, which which they they believe they can overrun. The Lord's saying it's going to come to nothing. And uh, this, you know, this is, um, a lot of what Isaiah's got to say is bad news, isn't it? Um, What he's got to say about what's coming, hard to take for whom Isaiah has to speak to. You know, Isaiah loves Israel. He He doesn't hate these people. And what he's got to say is very hard. So the Lord speaks to Isaiah in verse 11. He says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Uh, Do you know he... 
he's got to deliver some bad news. And, um, you know, the Lord gives us history in advance, right, out of his word. And, and some of it's pretty bad news um, about what's going to be happening in the world. It was the case with Isaiah. There's an there's a invasion coming. And a lot of people hearing this would be very afraid. The ungodly would hear this, these things, and it would just, it would just be overwhelmed with fear. And they talk about threatenings, uh, threatening Isaiah, and talking about a conspiracy. And the Lord says to Isaiah, look, don't fear what the ungodly fear. Yes, I'm telling you history in advance. These things are coming. But don't process the news the way the ungodly do. And I think that's very appropriate for us today. Look, we we got a lot of things that we can just draw straight line extrapolations on the world from just looking at the news, you know. We know more than that out of, out of the scriptures, what the Lord says about the direction of the world. But, the, but we have the same news, you know, you go on to whatever, whatever news channel or internet source you get. It's just, you draw a straight line projections and it's bad news and it can generate a lot of fear but we as the children of God aren't supposed to process the future the same way as the ungodly do are we we're not the ungodly don't fear what they fear Uh, even though we're watching today's news and the problems are coming um it's easy for them to get, and the ungodly to get worried. We should not process the news that way from uh, the perspective of the ungodly. They have good cause to be frantic. We do not. We're, we're not one big group, right? The news would have you think that. We're not. Uh, they have good reason to be fear, to be fearing. Look, the Lord knew how to differentiate between the godly and the ungodly then. He does now. He still does. We have a very different future in front of us. So what should we do? Well, he says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. What's the cure for the fear? As you process the news and look at it, the fear of the Lord. The scripture says, The fear of the Lord is clean. And that cleanness has to do with freedom and with uh, uh, unencumberedness. Yeah, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, verse 14, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel, and as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Um, Instead of fear, he tells them, Trust in me. I will protect you. That word sanctuary there, verse 14, he will be as a sanctuary. It just means a safe place. I will be your protection. So this is his response in verse 16. Isaiah's response is, bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Here I am and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. What's the answer to that? When we see the world falling apart, people freaking out over the news and the projections of what's happening, what do we do? 
Well, we cling to God's word. We cling to God's word, and it says, uh, he says, Here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are for signs and for wonders in Israel. How are they signs and wonders in Israel? Well, Isaiah's name, the book of Isaiah, is the theme of of Isaiah's salvation. And and Isaiah's name itself means the Lord is salvation. His kids' names, Shear Jashub, means uh, the remnant will return. It's a prophecy about the faithful being protected and and the Lord bringing back that faithful remnant. And his other kid, you know, we can't say a lot, we'll just call him Speedy. Um, His name was a a prophecy also to the unfaithful, the ungodly, that judgment is coming. So without even having to say anything, they they were a sign, they were witness. You know, in a lot of ways, uh, the people didn't want to hear what Isaiah had to say. But they were just a living witness. They were a living epistle. You know, the New Testament says the very same thing about you and I. Second Corinthians 3 says that we are living epistles. And there's a lot of ways in which the world doesn't want to hear what we have to say. A lot of ways they're silencing us. In the workplace, you can't speak. In this place, you can't say anything. you got to silence that Christian voice. But they can't silence the witness of a life lived in obedience to the Lord. That is a witness. And it convicts people. That's why you get persecuted for just living in obedience. I'm not saying anything. Well, you've got religion. Well, I'm sorry. I'm just living my life for the Lord now. They can't stop that witness of a life of obedience and the light that comes from it. People are reading your life. And uh, they know you that your life preaches. So, in the same way he was a living witness, a living epistle, we are called that in the New Testament. Verse 19, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Very simply put, the word of God is the only light in this world. Look, um, what he says here is, is when they say to you, seek those who mediums and wizards, the, the words there, mediums and wizards, um, uh, they're not talking, you know, we think about wizards, it's been... Uh, stolen by um, that word, you know, Harry Potter, he's got the wand and stuff. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who have special knowledge, like an initiated sort of secret knowledge. Mediums, the word mediums is a little more familiar to us. Somebody who, um, who poses as a link, a voice, a connection to the unseen spiritual world, and they speak to, well, you know, that's, this is popular stuff today. You know, you don't have to go very far on your uh, television channels to find um, this kind of stuff going on. This is very, very popular. It's growing in popularity. And if you are going to be someone who, and I think you should be, someone who walks with spiritual truth and spiritual realities, the realities of the Word of God, you should be able to answer that stuff and know what that is. It's very, very popular. You know, there are... 
paranormal societies right in Appleton. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, they go out ghost hunting and stuff like that, and then they bring in their channelers and their mediums to try to contact. That's what is being said that people were doing. They were fearful of what's happening. So they're looking for some knowledge. Their, their leaders are doing nothing, and so they're looking for super knowledge, supernatural knowledge. And so they go to the occult. And the Lord says, what are you doing? You want spiritual truth. You want spiritual revelation. Come to me. I'll give it to you. In fact, the only place you can go is God's word for light. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, books out there to, that post itself, you know, a lot of religious traditions that say, we have revelation of truth and light. I'm sorry, it's only God's word. It looks like, some of their books look like a book, you know, a normal book. We have a Bible and it looks like a normal book, but it's not the same. It's, you know, their other books are printed on paper, ink, all that sort of stuff. Ours looks exactly the same, uses some of the, a lot of the same words, you know, a lot of verbs, nouns. <laughs> how come ours is different? That's a, that's a very good question. And how is it alive? How is it light? It's spiritually alive. It's not material life. I've heard people make that mistake. Well, the word of God is living and powerful. It is, but that doesn't mean the pages are alive. It doesn't mean the ink is alive. It's spiritually alive. I've heard of people doing silly things of taking the Bible and putting it in the dump. It, you know, it's going to bless the land because you put it. That's a, that's, a, that's a real heavy, that's a serious misunderstanding. It's not materially alive. It's spiritually alive because it comes from God. It is his word. You know, we, can, we, we already looked at some of the, uh, of the facts that, that make it unique, right? The history in advance. We talked about that just a little bit. And, and God invites you to verify his word. He says, check me out. If I haven't told you history exactly right, then, then whatever you're listening to, whatever you receive, if it isn't exactly right about the future, it didn't come from me. That's, that's quite a standard to bear up under. God's not afraid of that. He's not afraid of you judging him and his word that way. Other, other traditions, other books, they get a few things maybe here or there, or, or it's, it's obscure, it's, you, know, you can't really tell exactly what they're saying, and it's fuzzy interpretations. No, God is exactly right about the future. So these mediums and wizards, look, um, when you encounter that, you should have an answer for that. You should know what it is. Don't, don't be uh, uh, afraid of, of answering that stuff. Um, you know that um, those mediums and those wizards, they say they get knowledge from the unseen world. They have some connection to an entity that is speaking to them. I think that's true. They are speaking to an entity. Those entities like to sell themselves as reliable. And they do that by presenting accurate historical facts. Right? You've, I don't know if you've ever seen those shows or, or encountered somebody like that. They like to say, well, we're speaking to, you know, and there's just a million different scenarios that they come out there. The popular ones are the Victorian, you know, lover who fell down the stairs and she's wandering the house now or... You know, that kind of stuff. Um, 
that might be accurate, that there really was somebody like that. But it's a, it's, it's a step that you can't verify to say that that's that person. It's a case of identity theft is what it is. It's what it is. You heard of identity theft? You think we invented it? <laughs> Come on. Satan's been doing this for a long time. Um, the fallen angelic beings, whatever they are, demons, fallen angels, whatever, they have that kind of accurate historical facts. They can tell you accurately what happened. And then they like to pretend, to pretend that that's the person speaking, right? Um, look, the point of, of them doing that, right, what's the point of, of, of Satan operating that way? Well, it's to muddy the water, make it confusing, to keep people guessing, right? The scriptures are clear. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There's no qualifiers there. You know, in judgment, unless God's too busy that day and he doesn't notice that you died. And then you get left wandering the halls of whatever. No. God does not suffer from that kind of lack of attention or, you know, a stack of paper on you. You didn't notice that you died. No, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Um, so when you encounter that, you have some light from God's word to understand what's going on there. It's just a case of identity theft. You know, as, as, as pastors, sometimes we go out and do funerals for, um, um, for uh, funeral homes. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and we ended up encountering families, and we want to speak the gospel to them and give them that light. It's, it's not uncommon for people to say, oh, I so want to hear from my dead loved one. And, and they're very vulnerable to that, to being deceived that way. That, that longing to want to hear from somebody who you greatly love, who's passed on, can lead to great amount of deception that way. And uh, we have to tell them, no, I'm sorry, you didn't hear from your dear grandfather. As much as you love them, as much as they loved you, they don't have the ability to come back and speak to you. That channel is closed. Unfortunately, if they are getting accurate historical interactions, and you'll see that on TV, right? The mediums that talk to people, and, they, and people are moved because they think they are talking to their dead loved one. Mm-mm, they're not. They're being deceived. We want light and we want truth. We go to God's word. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, is because there is no light in them. Let's keep going. Verse 21, and he talks now about that northern group that's going to be hard hit early by the Assyrian and by the, the invasion. He says, they will pass through it. Who's they? Well, they who are going through the mediums and the wizards and getting no light, getting no direction, they're going to pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. It shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God, and look upward, and they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, 
as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Again, those Naphtali and Zebulun are northern tribes. Being in the north, they were, uh, they were kind of distant from the core of religious activity in Israel. Of course, that would be Jerusalem, where the temple is. And that was sort of a concentrated um, uh, spiritual um, you know, activity was down there around Jerusalem. All the learning, all the scholars, all the, um, you know, the, the important people moved south to, to, to be around that, to be around the temple. So left kind of the northern regions, uh, kind of, you know, uh, heavily influenced by um, the Gentile areas. And they were the first ones to pass into idolatry, the northern tribes, the first ones to be subject to judgment, further idolatry. And I think what's going on here is that the Lord, you know, he loves these people. He loves his people. He loves his children. And he knows that there's a word, a hard word to be, to be said about correction and about judgment and discipline. And, you know, as, as parents, sometimes we have to just, you know, go that way with our kids. And we don't like it. It's like the Father in heaven. He doesn't want to spend all his time talking and thinking about that. He'd rather think about the good times, the things that are coming, the times when there will be blessings and there will be joy. I think he can only think about that judgment stuff so much and talk about it so much before he goes and talks about this. He says, Thou that gloom and that darkness, it's not going to last. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, they were oppressed, but, but afterward more heavily oppressed the way of, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Um, Galilee, that northern uh, area, um, was going to be first to go in to the, that, the chastisement and the darkness, but they're also going to be the first ones to receive uh, the blessings of light. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And we're familiar with this passage. Um, the great light is coming to those northern tribes. Of course, this is a prophecy of Jesus, that anointed one who's coming, who would, uh, about whom all of God's plans are wrapped up in. In this one, he's going to come as a great light to the north. You know, Jesus, it's kind of funny, Jesus didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. He, and he didn't set up his headquarters in Jerusalem. As important as Jerusalem was, the center of religious life to the nation of Israel, he didn't, he didn't spend a lot of time there. He went there as required by the law for the required feasts annually, but he set up his his um, headquarters, so to speak, up in the north, around the Sea of Galilee, in Capernaum, seems to be where he spent most of his time and did most of his stuff. I mean, most of the miracles that he did, they had a tremendous privilege up there in the north with Jesus. And having selected that area to be um, where he did most of his, most of his works, um, he, he talks in verse 3 about 
how this is going to change, this darkness, this gloom in the future. He says, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Uh, You know, for an agricultural society back then, happiest time of the year is when that those crops come in. Wow, that's, you know, for a farmer, that's, that's the happiest time of the year. Then the other one, he says here, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, you, you know, you'd be real nervous going into battle. But when you come back and you're bringing all kinds of extra stuff because you won that battle and you're, you know, a huge injection of wealth and material goods and you're back, the fact that you're just back, time of great rejoicing. And he says, that's what it's going to be like. Uh, the joy that the Messiah is going to bring is going to multiply that nation. It's going to be like the highest points that you can think of. For you, Verse 4, For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Of course, all this will ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus' second coming, when he sets up that millennial kingdom, and that nation would be blessed above every nation in the world, Israel will be. And in talking about all these, all these blessings, about the light and the joy, how does it brought about? Verse 6 and 7, very familiar passage. For unto us a child is born... Unto us a son is given. Now we um, spent a lot of time on this passage uh, on Christmas Eve. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but uh, if if you want to go into depth that passage, pick up the the you know the CD, the, the pick it up on the phone or whatever. Get a copy. Um, a child is born. Um, there's there's coming somebody who is just going to be born as a as a normal human being. But also a son is given. That's somebody's unique son. So they should not have been surprised when he claimed to be the son of God. This is where this light is coming from. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful. He is wonderful. You know, if you were with us on Christmas Eve, you got to hear the testimony um, of a a couple of folks from our fellowship, and you could sum up their testimony in saying that they lived their life without the Lord, and then they found the Lord to be wonderful. And, and I don't know if you're here this morning or who's taken this in. A friend brought you or a friend handed you this or tuned you into the Internet. It's because they have found that the Lord is wonderful, and they want you to know about it. The most wonderful thing he's going to do for you is he's going to forgive your sin. Is he's going to take the sin debt that you have that separated you from God, and he's going to make himself personally responsible for it and pay for it, pay for everything, so that you don't have to pay for it. Instead, he's going to give you the free gift of perfect righteousness before the Father in heaven so that you are saved from all your sin freely because of his death and his resurrection. He is wonderful. This government that he's going to have, uh, in, in, in effect, all that he's going to do and all that he's going to affect in the world is going to be under that banner of being wonderful. And in today's election cycle, boy, how we long for that, right? I mean, it's just, 
you wonder if anybody's got anything, any answers. He's going to be the counselor. And being wonderful, he's the wonderful counselor. If you want to make that one word, wonderful counselor, that's fine. It doesn't change it at all. He's going to have the right answers. You want the right answers for your life, for where you're going, what you're doing? We all want somebody in our life who has good answers. We learn that as we get older, right? We think we know it all when we're young, so we turn away from that wisdom of our parents and things, and then we wise up a little bit and we go, hey, I don't know about this. Well, you know, the Lord knows where you're going. He knows where the world is going. He knows where the world is going morally, spiritually, economically, in every way. He knows where you're going to be. He wants to give you the right answers. He wants to be your personal counselor. And he will do it from the standpoint also of being mighty God. No one's going no to challenge him. There's no threats to him. I like that. I want that on my side. I hope you do too. Mighty God on my side. Everlasting Father. Well, that's more like the Father of Eternity. And again, people are looking for meaning in their life and a legacy and, and meaningful impact in their life. The Lord will bring that into your life. Eternally weighty, glorious things. He's the father of eternities. He's the prince of peace. He will bring pre- peace to your life. He brings peace to our life. The first peace he brings is peace with God. Scripture says, by faith we're justified and, we, and have peace with God. We can't know the peace of God until we know we have peace with God. He is our peace because of his sacrifice and what he did on the cross for us. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom in order to order it and establish with judgment and justice from this time forward even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This child who's coming, this government who's going to set up, it's going to bless everybody across the whole world. And that's, that's, that's a future thing. Obviously, the scriptures speak of this Messiah coming. This, this passage actually makes for some problems. Led to a, lot of great, a great deal of confusion on behalf of the nation of Israel, those interpreting the scriptures. Because the Messiah is going to come, and they plainly know that he's going to set up this worldwide government. So Jesus comes, and he begins fulfilling all the mandates of Scripture that point to him as being the Messiah. He's born at the right time, in the right place, the right line. He's doing the things that the Messiah has said that he will do. These disciples put their faith in him. And they're thinking, well, he's going to set up this government. He's going to, he's going to be there. He's going to set up this worldwide government. Um, and so uh, this led for a problem from them because now he's crucified. And even though he's raised from the dead, they are still got this big question mark. And they're asking him, even after his resurrection, are you going to set up the kingdom now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? I mean, that's what the Messiah does, right? Well, it has to be resolved, right, with a second coming of that Messiah. He comes twice. 
They're thinking, you can't go to heaven until you've set up the kingdom, right? This resolved at the second coming. Right now he's got an invisible kingdom. When he stood there before Pilate, Jesus stood there before Pilate, and Pilate's getting a little nervous about this guy because he's not acting like everybody else who's condemned in danger of dying. This guy's rather calm, cool, and collected. Finally says to him, are you a king? Jesus says, I am a king. My kingdom's not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would fight. The kingdom can't be seen right now. It's coming. But it's an invisible kingdom right now. But it can be made visible when when the citizens of the king, his children, obey him. Then there's a flash of the glory of that kingdom. And we see that the Lord is working and moving still in this world. We can see it when people obey him. So the Lord invites us now to be under that, the reign of that kingdom. And that invitation is to everybody. Do you want, you know, that that kingdom is coming. It's coming to earth. There's two questions to ask in regards to that. Where am I going to be? I think each person needs to ask that question. Where am I going to be when that kingdom is on earth? I know where I want to be. The second question is, how do I get into that kingdom? It's very simple. Just trust and believe that Jesus is who he said he is. That he's done what he said he has. That he has died for your sin. He has risen from the dead. He does want to be your savior. He wants to be to you wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He wants you to know the increase of that peace in an unlimited way in your life. First, to get into that kingdom, you have to step over that threshold of him being your savior first. It's an easy thing to do. Just trust him. Just believe him. He's not looking for any special recipe of words. He's not looking for any... Um, anything, any religious ceremony he's, he's looking for is just a sincere heart that will receive him and, and believe what he has said. If that's you this morning, you should come up and pray with somebody after the service. We want to be sure we get good material into your hands and you know that you have a time and place where you did that, where you received the Lord and entered into that kingdom. Let's finish there. Why don't we stand and we will pray. Thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for inviting us to that kingdom and for uh, the beauty of that which you offer us. Thank you, Lord. You are wonderful. And we want to be people who proclaim that, even if it's just with the obedience of our life. Thank you, Lord. Glorify yourself through us. We love you, Lord, and we pray in your name. Amen.